Sustainable filmmaking to me means that brands need to think about how they can make the most of all that footage. So we should constantly be thinking about revisiting that footage on that hard drive and coming up with interesting and innovative ways of using it. Hi and welcome to another edition of Video Talks. I'm your host Andy Greenhouse and this is the podcast where we talk to creators, commissioners and everyone in between about the business of video. So across our expanding collection of interviews there are tips on how to be a better filmmaker or videographer, how businesses and brands can use video more effectively and insights into how creators work with video to expand their brands and, and their reach as well. And if you're just getting started in video or video marketing, there's tips on things like the best gear for beginners, um, what kind of lighting you should use, how adaptable you can be, kind of different setups, that sort of thing. Um, and also, you know, brilliant experts who have really made it in their field that, that have got loads of wisdom to impart. So if you're here for the first time, please, 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 I'm not begging you, but I put three pleases in there, um, hit subscribe if you can and leave us a rating and review so we can keep episodes coming into your feed. Uh, you can connect with us or me on at Video Talks Podcast on Instagram. And for episode show notes, you can go to videotalks.co where all the episodes and the links are there for you. So let's get into this week's episode, which is an interview with Tom Baker, filmmaker. Um, in this interview, we talk about quite a lot of things. He, he opens the box of tricks, basically his kind of way of working. He's a very clever filmmaker. He uses editing to his advantage, uh, clever editing, always looking at different ways of looking at things. So we cover everything from, you know, what it's like to kind of be a self-taught filmmaker, not go to conventional film school, why it's good to be like a vacuum cleaner on a shoot and kind of hoover up all that content, what exactly is sustainable filmmaking and how that can help brands and businesses. Uh, and we dig into the kind of gear that he uses as well. So let's get into the interview with Tom Baker, Run VT. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Video Talks. I'm really excited today to introduce my guest, Tom Baker. Tom is a director, cinematographer, and editor who specializes in inspirational documentary and story led brand content. He's driven to create authentic and inspirational films with meaning at their heart. Tom loves to share incredible stories that he believes will inform, educate and inspire audiences. You'll find his work across commercials, corporate videos, adventure films and of course YouTube and IGTV. He's got a somewhat experimental approach to storytelling, sometimes using unconventional lenses, music, editing techniques, things like that. I hope we're going to delve deeper into his back pocket of tricks later in the interview. Recently, during the COVID-19 lockdown, he's been creating self-initiated, inspiring videos, which we'll talk more about in this episode. 
I'm really looking forward to delving deeper into his career and creative thinking. So, Tom, uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's good to be here. Um, so I've given our audience a brief overview of your work and background. Please, could you expand a little and give us a bit more about who you are and what you do? No problem. So I guess the easiest way to put it is I call myself a filmmaker, but I guess not in the traditional sense. I, I like to call myself a filmmaker because I'm neither a videographer or a cinematographer. I feel I sit in that sweet spot in between and I love to shoot and I love to edit. And I think that with the, you know, the, the new technology we have now, it's afforded this entry level where people can come in and shoot brilliant, brilliant work without having to go the traditional route of runner, climbing up the ladder through production and um, slowly, slowly waiting years to get their hands on a camera. So as soon as I could, I started filming and found that my shots got a lot better when I also edited. So I like to call myself a, a multi-skilled creative. Nice. I like it. So you found, to some extent, you'll be editing camera while you're shooting. Yeah. Uh, and when I'm on set, I look at the camera a bit like a vacuum cleaner, uh, which, me which basically means I love to hoover up everything and everything as much as possible from textures, close-ups, dialogue, landscapes. You can't plan that stuff. And I know people would suggest shoot conservatively, but I would much rather say the opposite. Shoot lots, suck it up like a vacuum cleaner. And when you're in the edit, it affords you so much choice and you have so much more to work with that I think personally, I enjoy that process. And I, and I find that I make better films that way. Nice analogy. That's good. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you and a lot of people would would not as well. <laughs> people work in different ways, don't they? Mm. Um, so, okay, so this podcast is called Video Talks. How is, um, how is moving image working for you and your projects? Well, a couple of years ago, I met a director who took me under his wing and we worked closely on a lot of projects together and what was really interesting working with him he always taught me to push my work to try and be a little bit more unconventional um, that could mean moving the camera even closer than I had framed it up or panning the camera to the left a little bit or creating less looking space on our subject or you know, change the music after the first six seconds. But I think the lesson there was that he taught me the freedom of being able to see the potential and a new perspective in the work I was doing. So for me, to answer your question, how has moving image worked for me? Um, I think it's about breaking the rules. I think that guys who go to film school are taught the principles, to follow the principles and to follow the rules. Whereas, um, the lessons I've learned from this director have been to break them and to look at um, look at interview scenes, look at a, look at your framing, look at the way you're editing a scene in in a original and unconventional way. That's brilliant. Do you want to give a shout out to that director? Yeah, so that's um, Malcolm Green. I must have met him about five years ago. He's an ex ad man turned director, and 
Well, he's taught you well. I have a lot, I owe him a lot, but at the same time, he was very difficult to work for. He would sit with me throughout the whole editing process. And that was very intense to begin with, almost having someone breathing down the back of your neck. Um, I guess I called it my, my apprenticeship because I didn't go to traditional film school. I learned everything I know from YouTube and friends and, and simply doing it myself. So for him to sit with me and coach me and take me under his wing, that, I, that was my film school. On that point, how important do you think it is for people to have mentors of some form? Massively. I think especially in this industry where a lot of people are freelancers, you're working for yourself, you can be very isolated at times if you're a one-man band shooting on your own, if you're a single editor. And so the only way you're going to learn and push yourself is surrounding yourself with people who are better than you. For me, a mentor is a bit like a, a sports coach. They can work with you over time to train that muscle to get better at filming, to get better at editing, and to advise from their years of experience. Because, you know, a lot of people can shoot pretty pictures and edit, but this is a business. We've got to go out and find the work. We've got to be able to be businessmen at the same time. So f to have a mentor is massively important. That's a brilliant point. Well, we'll be talking a bit more about business later on, the business of, of video and filmmaking. Um, could you touch upon your your storytelling process um, from brief to delivery? Is there, a, is there a particular way that you work? A lot of the work I do is sort of branded documentary. So you have to be very reactive. And as much as you plan with documentary, you have to research your characters, you have to understand about them. You have to have a sense of what their story is. But as soon as you step into their world, you've got to be willing to throw it all away. So I'll give you an example. We were in South Africa filming uh, a story. Um, no, sorry, we were in Scotland filming these two brothers talking about the oil industry. And then they suddenly started mentioning their grandfather. And we thought, Oh, that sounds really interesting. Let's go, let's go meet the grandfather. So we reacted in the moment, picked up all our gear and, you know, rocketed down the road and interviewed the granddad. And it became a really nice sort of depth to the story because you had the two boys uh, narratives and then the father brought some sort of profoundness to it. Uh, and so the process there is, is have a plan, be willing to throw it away, but also be very reactive to what's going on. So if someone says something, don't just go by your script of what you thought you wanted to say. Uh, listen to them, react to it, and it will probably take you into a more interesting place. If you're in a situation like that, are there kind of some essential tools that you're, you know, you've got that you can reach for, like a lens that you rely on, or something that is just like, right, I've got a kind of I've got my guns, I've got to run. It's a good question. So I was thinking about the tools that I love to use. And one of them, if I, if I was in this situation, I love to grab a 35 mil lens uh, with a close focus adapter. And, and the reason I love this close focus adapter is that it allows me to get very, very close to the characters or the contributors and be able to 
pinpoint sharpness on their eyes. So with a 35 mil lens, not only does their face really big in frame, but you capture the landscape behind them. So it gives you a really empowering sort of cinematic feel to the shot. Uh, and I don't see a lot of people using that because in documentary, you traditionally have a 24 to 70 mil zoom lens with image stabilizer because that makes sense. Because <laughs> then you can, you don't have to keep swapping lenses and your shots are stabilized and in focus. But I love the challenge of using the close focus. And I feel it gives um, an intimacy to a lot of the, the work that I do, which means that I get closer to the stories. You know, if someone's sharing an intimate story, um, say uh, a charity film, rather than getting a long lens and shooting them from a distance, like you might in a safari, we love to go really, really close and get personal with them. And I think that brings um, a more personal and emotional feel to the final films. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Um, that I'm sure there's a lot of filmmakers out there reaching for amazon right now yeah it's uh, a nice little trick it's a nice skill that uh, and and it makes it focusing very difficult because you've got to focus on the main lens and then focus on the close focus and you're it doesn't look very professional but but when you master it and you know when to use it uh i think it could be really powerful and give a uniqueness to footage when you know you go on youtube everything's shot on a a, a bloody sony or a a Canon Mark II, and it's just nice to find a point of difference in the way your footage looks. Yeah. Um, what is your kind of favorite camera to shoot on? I guess I broke into filmmaking when the playing field was opened wide up with the DSLR revolution. You know, everyone had their 5D Mark IIs and... Then the Sony A7, A7S came out, and that was that was when I really started taking things seriously. Uh, I must have had that Sony camera for about five years, and it never let me down. The picture quality you can get out of that, you know, two thousand pound camera was unbelievable. And and what I loved about it was that it was so small, and for documentary work with real characters and people who aren't used to cameras in their faces. It was just so disarming. And, it, and in fact, after a while, they never realized it was there. So you could capture the, you can capture these really authentic stories uh, and you can physically walk closer to them because you're not, you know, piling over with a huge Alexa mini. Um, so, yeah, the Sony was my workhorse for a long time. I only recently up upgraded, but it will always be my go-to. I'll always have a, a Sony a7 III or something in my camera bag because it's small, it's nimble, and it's never going to let you down, especially in those low-light scenarios where, where it's got such great um, sensitivity. What would you recommend? Somebody who's showing an interest in filmmaking hasn't been to film school, just like you. What would you, what kind of, budget kit would you advise them to get their hands on that's a good question a lot of people ask you that i'm sure you get that asked the same question what camera should i buy and i've actually been advising a local fitness studio during lockdown um i've actually been working with them but also advising and they've obviously needed and wanted to move their business 
online for um, remote fitness, remote workouts. And for their live stream, I consulted them on the best cameras to use. And I recommended the, the Sony a7 III, the, the same one I had, because I only feel confident recommending a camera that I've used for five years that's been an absolute reliable workhorse. And I can vouch for that. So I, I don't want to suddenly say, okay, I know your price range is a thousand pounds. This is a two thousand pound camera. But if you're serious about it, those Sony cameras are made to last. And you can pick a second hand one up on eBay for probably, a, a, you know, just over a thousand pounds now. So not only are they small, but the image quality is great. So I would say my best recommendation is, is what I've used. Would you recommend services like uh, like Fat Llama for people who don't have money to spend on cameras? What I would say to people is make friends with people. Make friends with people who have cameras, and they will happily lend them to you. I, I lend my camera to to friends all the time. In fact, my camera's currently with that fitness studio, and it's great because I know I know it's reliable and. I know that they'll, they'll get the best out of it. So in terms of answering your question, yeah, make friends with people who have got cameras. Fat Llama and stuff is great. Um, if you're willing to kind of, you know, go the lengths of meeting up with someone, picking up the camera, it's a camera you haven't used or is not necessarily reliable. Um, occasionally I've seen the, you know, a Canon um, C300 on there and thought, oh, okay, wouldn't it be great just to rent that um, for, you know, 60 pounds for the day and just get a feel for it, teach it to myself so that say if a job comes up and someone asks me if, if I'm skilled to use that camera, I can confidently say yes. With with an A7 III, if someone was to get hold of an A7 III from a friend that they've made friends with, hopefully for genuine reasons, not just cameras, um, is there is there a go-to lens that they should be looking at that covers all bases? Is it your 35mm? Yeah, this is a, a whole world of expensive choices, really. Um, all the gear that I've built up is over a seven-year period. So for people who are starting off, it's probably most useful for them to keep the kit lens that comes with the camera so they can understand... That is what the wide shot looks like. And when they zoom in, that's what, uh, you know, the 50 looks like. But people tend to pair the kit lens with a 50 mil prime. Um, and, you know, as you, you're probably well familiar, there was a stage where everyone was shooting wide open on a 50 mil on a Canon camera because it looked great. And, and um, the discipline of a prime lens is that you can't zoom. And so you physically have to walk closer or physically walk further away to find your frame and and that teaches you about focal lengths and it disciplines you in a way that a zoom lens doesn't so i would recommend the kit lens that comes with the camera and a cheap 100 pound prime prime lens off uh, ebay perfect is it has there been a time where you've had to overcome hurdles obstacles and have you kind of tasted failure along the way yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Where do I start with that question? There's, there's endless failures um, and hurdles along the way, and there, and I'm sure there'll be lots more. Um, if I give you one example, it was when I met that director years ago. He 
brought me on board to this big documentary shoot for a big corporate company, which meant that we were traveling for five weeks across the world to, I don't know, eight different countries, which was an incredible opportunity, but also a lot on the line because there was a lot of money being spent. And he, he was directing, he brought on a DOP, a very experienced DOP, and he brought me on as, as I guess, this creative, rebellious second unit. And for me, that was really exciting because he wanted me to pick up textures. He wanted me to, you know, stick GoPros on the side of boats, to whip a drone in the sky, to get some B camera every now and then, to um, take some stills of environments. And it was a really creative job. But the problem was that the producer they brought on board was quite traditional and he didn't understand how I fitted in this crew. He was used to a traditional film set and he couldn't work me out. I was neither a camera assistant. I wasn't really the second unit DOP. Um, I was a sort of kind of creative rebel getting all these quirky angles that he didn't understand. And, and, and that meant we clashed a lot and became a difficult environment. So I learned a lesson that it's important to communicate my role and style when I take on jobs so I can manage expectations further along down the line. I like the term creative rebel. That's that's like being a rebel, but being creative in it is just cooler. It's like you're mm. doing it for a reason. You're like, I want to get this. I want to get this shot. I want to make this better because it, well, you didn't think about this approach. That's cool. What's been your kind of your favorite environments to work in um, with filmmaking, storytelling? I really love working in small crews. And I really love taking one light to a shoot. Because I think that when you have less, you work harder to be creative. If you've got a truck full of sky panels, you're going to pump different blue and oranges into the scene. But if there's just one window in the scene and you're interviewing someone, you think, okay, how are we going to work with this? How are we going to navigate around? And, and I love that problem solving um, in the moment. And I like being nimble enough to say, right, we've got one light, which could be natural light or a, a small strobe light, for example, uh, how are we going to use this to its uh, full potential um, with the restrictions we've got? So I guess, you know, my favorite environments are the one where we have less. The world has changed. The world is going to continue to change and adapt. And it's likely that there's going to be a number of businesses who will be looking at maybe co more cost-effective ways of telling their stories and reaching out to their customers and communicating to their customers. But I don't want to, you know, generalize, but some businesses are going to really, they've had time to really look at their model and perhaps they'll back away from um, big advertising agency models and look at what they can do themselves and what they can do with l smaller budgets. So what you're talking about is, I think it's incredibly relevant. Are there certain ways that, um, brands and business businesses should be communicating with 
their audience? One thing I love to talk about with brands is this thing called sustainable filmmaking. And what that means for me is not only filming lots on set, capturing all the different textures and stories and angles as much as you can, like the, uh, like the vacuum analogy I used earlier, but actually sustainable filmmaking to me means that brands need to think about how they can make the most of all that footage. So instead of the days of just a traditional 60 second TV ad and a 30 second, we should constantly be thinking about revisiting that footage on that hard drive and coming up with interesting and innovative ways of using it because there's so much waste, you know, the, the, the whole adage of, you know, everything just hits the cutting room floor. Well, to me, that that's valuable. And in this day and age where you've got a trillion different social media platforms, well, I think a cost-effective way going forward is for brands to say, right, they spend a lot of money on a couple of days shoot, but actually, if we keep revisiting the footage, we could create months worth of content. And I found that to be really successful for, uh, for the clients that I work for. So I think in this day and age where there's so much noise that brands can't just make one video and expect it to, you know, go viral or catch fire or be popular. They've got to be thinking about making consistent, regular content. So if they can take this sustainable filmmaking approach where they're constantly thinking about revisiting the footage and new ways of treating it, uh, I think it's a really um, interesting way to work. Hey, this is Andy. Sorry to interrupt the interview. But if you are a filmmaker or a creator, an animator, any of those, then you might be interested in this section, which is called the one minute creator pitch doesn't have to be one minute, it can be 30 seconds, could be 15 seconds, but it's essentially your chance to shout out about your film or your project that is launching very soon. Uh, this week's shout out comes from Alexi Slater, who is a writer, producer, director from Turn the Slate Productions. Now, back in 2012, I was running a mobile film festival called Canada Van, where we would take short films independent short films to the Cannes Film Festival in a Ford Transit and screen on the street. And when we got back, we held a an awards um, and it was all sponsored by Ford Motor Company. Uh, and 82 was their short film and it won. And he's just got a quick announcement to make. Hi, this is Alexi Slater. I'm the writer-producer of uh, short film 82, starring Nick Moran, that we made back in 2012. Um, it won the uh, Best Film and Best Drama at the Van Door Awards that um, Andy Greenhouse runs. So this is just a shout-out to let you know that it's um, just gone live on the Omeletto short film channel, which you can find on YouTube, um, and we're just trying to get as many people to see it as possible. So thanks very much. Bye. Well, I can completely vouch for that film. It's a great little short, so you should check it out on Omeletto. And of course, we'll put the link on the show notes page for this episode, which will be videotalks.co forward slash Tom B. Now let's get back to the interview. You've been working on some projects during lockdown. Can you tell me about some of those and um, 
and the thought processes and the the production processes behind them because you've had some really successful essentially viral hits haven't you during that time yeah it's been difficult first and foremost um as i mentioned we had lots of shoots cancelled as lots of people will be experiencing but i can't sit still and i can't sit and be sorry for myself because i'm so lucky to do this job i'm so lucky to be paid to film and tell stories i think it's absolutely incredible so when i don't have work i think of all the passion projects i could take on or competitions i could enter or self initiated projects so yeah so we decided that instead of just sitting around and doing nothing let's make a video that spoke to people during lockdown and we listened to our friends uh what they were saying and we realized that so many people had had their weddings cancelled and it wasn't just three or four people or 10 or 20 this was a global emotional issue um which we realized we couldn't ignore um and so rather than make another bleak video with empty streets we wanted to do something grounded in positivity um something that cheered people up in a meaningful and useful way so we created um yeah a film called to the brides and grooms which is basically addressing all those people whose weddings have been cancelled and saying they're not cancelled they're just on pause and when we resume we'll have the the greatest party in the world so that was again working with uh, with a friend a friend who who I co-wrote the the lyrics with and then it was a matter of putting it together in 2 days and the long story short I think we're now on 700,000 views on Facebook and and 100,000 on Instagram all organic and I think that happened because we listened to what people were talking about um we felt a pain that was real and we spoke to we didn't try and speak to everyone we spoke to a niche but it was a big enough niche of people getting married that one person shared it on their facebook page another person on a facebook group shared it because there's tons of wedding wedding groups on facebook and that was the success of it sort of snowballing into this bigger thing and i think people just wanted a bit of positivity it's so good to be proactive than to sit down and say i have no work because you never know what can come of it very true was so was it essentially you you vacuumed the internet for the, for the best content yeah um pretty much i spoke to people i know who have wedding footage you know uh, uh, there are lots of videographers who have captured weddings uh i've done a few favors for friends in the past so i went through my library and then I spoke to a few photographers asked them and then for the international footage I used um YouTube Creative Commons which is uh license free and I found some great footage on there so that we could make this uh feel like a worldly film that wasn't just sort of looked like the UK so we had shots from Africa, Asia, South America so that anyone anywhere in the world could relate to it and and I found actually using stills becomes quite a nice sort of textural style to the to the piece um and if anything quite authentic and the black eyed peas yeah so that's where you catch me out um <laughs> we 
actually tried to approach a brand. We we thought it'd be really good for a drinks brand to sponsor this film. You know, here's a toast to the brides and grooms, and let's have a virtual、um, wedding party hosted by this drinks brand.、Uh, I had a few conversations, and and I was willing to change the music and license some more footage for it, but you know, those conversations didn't go that far. So I thought, you know what? There's no brand behind this. It's feel good. Let's put it out there using the Black Eyed Peas. And would they really care that we're spreading joy? I'm not sure. And so then you followed it up with another film. Yeah, it's interesting because as a little bits of work,、uh, editing work have trickled in, I've still found myself with a lot of time. So I was like, okay, we've made a video that's been quite popular. Let me find a competition I can enter. So I saw, I found a,、uh, these guys on Instagram who were running a competition to make a, a home movie about something you're interested in. And for me, I think the best stories, the most personal stories, are the ones that you can reflect on what's happening in your own life. So, I'm lucky enough to be getting married next year, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to make a film about what it means to be a good husband? Because therefore, I can reflect on myself and bring a bit of my personality into the storytelling, which I rarely get the chance to do. So. Uh, and I also got the chance to interview my dad and sort of take it to a, a deeper level, whilst still staying in my flat in lockdown. So、uh, that was sort of the the strategy behind it. And and yeah, it was a, a successful film, and I think it got second place in the competition. And the the guys were really complimentary about it because I'd I hadn't rushed it. It wasn't something I was like, okay, I'm going to try and get this done in a day or two. I kept reworking the edit and revisiting certain、uh, lines in the script and saying, "What is the most interesting way to shoot this?" So you'll you'll see some of the frames, and there's a lot of cropping of images. There's a lot of split screen.、Um, there's quite a lot of typography, big and small, in the images. And I just thought, okay, how can this be as visually interesting to watch every second? And 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 as I said before, when there's no brand. You can have as much creative freedom as possible, and I learned loads of things along the process that I would never have tested if I was working for a brand on a deadline. And your process for that—did you storyboard? There's a lot of type in that. There's a lot of messaging, and obviously there's a script. Did you storyboard it? Yeah. So the process for that was I wrote a script on Google Docs. At first, it was super long, and then it was just a matter of reduction. Because for every twenty words、uh, you write down on a script, that's you know thirty seconds almost. Don't quote me on that, but you know you always got to trim it down and distill the actual, the key elements you need. And and the competition had to, the video had to be under two minutes. So I was working to those. Uh, restraints, and then you know, reaching out to my network. I know a few copywriters, and I just got him to read it and and challenge me. Otherwise, you're in your own bubble, thinking, "Is this good? Isn't it good? How can I make it better?" Oh, it's fine. But if you can share it with someone else and they can give feedback, it makes you look at it in a whole new way. Oh,、well, it's brilliant. We'll obviously have those both those films、um, embedded if we can on the show notes page of this episode.、Um, you touched on marketing. Um, your own work. 
how important is it for video creators? I use that as a very broad term. You know, you know, we could be talking about animators um, to market themselves. It's absolutely massive because gone are the days of there just being a select few filmmakers. There's more competition than ever, and everyone's shouting for your attention. So to be able to understand your own brand and your own voice and be able to communicate that to people, I think is really, really important. And as people say, Instagram can be a, a very valuable tool to show people what you're up to and, and you know show your best work. It is your online portfolio now. More than anything, it's just about relationships. It's touching base with that client you might have worked with a year ago, asking them how they are, asking them to go out for a a beer or a coffee and just catching up and not only ever touching base when they have a job or when you don't have work because at the end of the day people want to work with nice people because film sets are stressful places and film shoots can go on for hours and hours weeks and weeks so more than talent people want to know that you're a nice person to work with of course the product will be good but if you can just show that you're a good human being with um good intentions uh, and you want to create uh, a good relationship i think that's invaluable yeah relationships are key i mean that's when you know when we're talking about business the business of filmmaking um how have you adapted into that business mindset as time has gone on i think for a lot of filmmakers they can be most comfortable being behind the camera so to show off or promote their work can feel a bit arrogant, yet you have to play the game. You have to talk about your work, you have to show a passion for it, and you have to show people what you do. You want to be able to give people a call to action when you meet someone, direct them to your website or your, or your Instagram. Um, and so for me, every Every possible interaction is a new business opportunity. Um, as, as sort of cutthroat as that may sound, I went out with my girlfriend's friends before lockdown and her husband works in a certain industry. And to be able to tell my story and articulate to him and share my website and then, and then very informally say, hey, I'd love to uh, grab a coffee and, uh, and talk to you about what I do outside of this context. I think those things are really important. They might not go anywhere, but unless you're business-minded, you're not going to get any work. I've only recently started experimenting with Facebook ads, and, you know, a little bit of paid ad spend, because as a video creator... It's all well and good. We can make a film for our clients, for ourselves. But unless you can, unless you know how it's going to reach an audience or get the results and, re and return on investment that that client wants, then how useful is it? So uh, I've really been investigating um, the back end of, of, Facebook ads and, and actually all of a sudden you add a new string to your bow and it and you can say to your client well we're making this film for uh, your fitness studio well actually I can help you uh, promote that 
uh, and target the right people. So um, I think there's the the message there is there's always new things to learn and new skills to adopt because filmmaking nowadays isn't just one thing. You can't just expect to make a video and it get loads of views. You've got to understand the mechanics uh, of each platform and what works best for those. Yeah, that's brilliant. Brilliantly on point there. So you were, you know, you say you were self-taught on YouTube and um, various and learning, you know, once you're in the industry, et cetera, which is definitely, I would say, the best way to learn is by doing, isn't it? Um, what were your aspirations when you were growing up? I was born in Hong Kong uh, and I grew up in Belgium. So I've always been used to a, a life on the road which has become very handy for the nature of the documentary filmmaking work that I've done. Um, I'm very happy being on the road and very comfortable in different cultures. Uh, I love making things. So art was big for me at school. And, you know, in my later years, I started uh, to become a bit rebellious. And I knew that I didn't like being institutionalized. I didn't like being put in a box. I didn't like being told, all right, that's the answer or that's the answer. Um, and so, and I was fortunate enough, uh, I consider myself very grateful. My parents could see that I had an interest in filmmaking and I was lucky enough to go and do a course in New York for one summer holiday. I think that was called uh, the School of Communication and Performing Arts. And that really opened my eyes up to filmmaking. And, and I came out of that thinking, yeah, this is definitely the sort of thing I want to do. I, not only do you get to collaborate with lots of different types of people and different departments, but you come out and you make something. And for me, that always felt like time well spent. It might not have been what my parents were expecting, but now that they see that I enjoy what I do, I'm self-sufficient and independent, they, I think they're really proud. Well, they should be. You've got some amazing work there. Um, we're just moving into the scrub forward round, which is the quick fire round. If you don't want to answer, just say scrub. Okay, okay, got you. So video nasty. What's the worst habit that you see people practice in filmmaking? Overuse of drones. Everyone loves a drone, but too many people use it as an easy way in their films. I went to a film festival uh, a couple of months ago, and every single documentary started off with a drone shot. And it frustrated me. I thought, come on, guys, there's a much more original way of looking at this. It's too easy to start with a wide shot of a drone. What techniques and software? Adobe Suite to my sins. Um, I, I've been tied into Premiere for years, even though Adobe drive me crazy with their software updates. I won't get started there. Shortcuts. If you're an editor, love your shortcuts. You know, um, one of my tricks is I've, I always shoot lots of footage. So I spend my life pressing the L button and you double tap the L button, which means you can scrub sh through footage at twice the speed. Um, I feel like it, a lot of editors will avoid looking at all the footage because it takes a long time. Scrub through it at four times the speed and, and that will save you a lot of time. Interestingly, um, when you've got very, when you've got huge amounts of footage, 4K, even maybe 6k what's your uh, what's your answer for speedy for speedy editing if you've shot it 
you should understand and know what you've shot. If you're working with someone else's footage, um, I take all my footage and put it all in one sequence. And so that I can go back to that anytime and just scrub through it. And if your computer is half decent enough or you're playing it in a very low resolution, you can see everything you've got there and then. I never go to individual clips and start clicking on them and scrubbing individually. Uh, that's a waste of time. So put all your shots in one sequence. Good tip. Okay, so one influence, one productivity habit and one book you'd recommend. I wouldn't be the first one to say that I've been inspired by Casey Neistat's style of storytelling and filmmaking. You know, he he proved that you can entertain an audience of millions using solely one person and one camera. And he kind of blew that out the water with, you know, these multi-million dollar commercials and hundreds of people on set because he knew how to tell a story. And he's really opened my eyes up to different ways of using titles and visual metaphors that that's been a real influence and inspiration for me. Brilliant. One productivity habit. habit. Productivity habit, I'd say, yeah, surround yourself with people who make good work, make good content. That motivates you and you're only going to work harder and you're only, only going to be more motivated to do cool stuff. So surround yourself with people who are better than you. One book. So a filmmaking book that I found really interesting, I, can't, I don't know if I'm quoting it like for like, but there's one called In Discussions with Film Editors. And I think the whole thing is just interviews with Hollywood editors and, and how they've approached different films, working with directors, uh, use of sound design, how they've approached a scene. And when you can't reach those incredibly talented people, listen to them because I've picked up so many golden bits of advice from that book and to hear it, you know, unedited, just authentically coming out of their mouth in a book is, is really inspiring. I just love photography books. I think if you are interested in, in making pictures, then look at pictures, you know, but don't look at them on your computer screen, hold a book, flick through the pages, absorb an image for longer than, you know, a split second and look at how the light's falling in a scene. Look at where, uh, how that person's holding themselves. Look at actually how far the camera is away and, and, and what lens they might be using. Um, studying photography is the sort of the backbone to being, uh, a good cinematographer or storyteller. Okay. Uh, play, pause, stop. So this is one thing you always do, one thing you sometimes do, and one thing you should never do. One thing I always do is I build my camera the night before I go on set. Not only to test and see that it's working, but it means that I rock up on set with my pelly case in my left hand and my camera in my right. And it means that I'm not faffing with cables and building that up when I'm talking to the client or the contributors. I'm just good to go there. One thing you sometimes do. Uh, sometimes back up my footage three times, but normally it's just twice. And I know I am somewhat living dangerously. One thing you should never do is never interrupt your contributor. Like hold that silence. If you're doing a documentary interview and someone stopped talking, keep the camera rolling and don't interrupt them because they're about to say the most interesting thing that day. Give us one secret filmmaking tip. One thing I like to do when I start an interview, you ask someone, who are you? And they give you an answer. But I always like to then ask, who are you really? 
and they're quite thrown by that question, um, sometimes a little bit awkward. But then it makes them really think about who they are. And more often than not, you get a great answer. And already that interview that has started in a really interesting place. Thanks, Tom. Who are you really? Knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, I'm just someone making it up as I go along. Uh, you know, there's no right or wrong in filmmaking now because technology is changing every minute. Uh, where video sits on different platforms and different lengths is evolving every day. So now we're all of a sudden having to think about TikTok, um, all of a sudden having to think about vertical videos and, and how how that works for us. So uh, I, I live somewhat insecurely thinking that I'm not good enough or my work isn't good enough, um, but that pushes me to try and do the best possible thing. So whenever I'm on set, I try and make it better than the last job I was on. That's admirable. Um, what's your vision for the future? It's really interesting, that question, because when you're a freelancer, you, you stop living your life too far in advance because you might get a phone call in two weeks' time that says, do you want to go shoot in Brazil? And all of a sudden you pivot and things change and you have to be able to react and live like that. So I find it very hard to look further than the next few months, really. I want my work to be seen by lots of people. And, and I think that's becoming harder and harder unless you have a big ad spend. Or in the case of the brides and grooms, you get lucky or you, you catch a moment. It's really um, demoralizing when you've slaved over a project for, for months or weeks and, you know, client puts it on their YouTube or you share it with a friend, it gets a hundred views. We've all been there. Uh, and so for me, I, I want to see good storytelling get more views than dogs in paddling pools. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible, but I have the same wish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. How, yeah. did, how would people connect with you if you're up for connecting? Yeah. So I was... Uh, an event a long time ago now, it feels. Uh, and someone once said to me, they were like, ah, Tom Baker Filmmaker. And I thought, well, that's quite a nice name. So I changed my Instagram handle to Tom Baker Filmmaker. Uh, so you can find me there and you can email me at tom.baker51 at gmail.com. And I'm always happy to give advice or grab a coffee with a stranger and talk about cameras because wow this is a fun fun industry and a fun job to do coffee with strangers is brilliant i find yeah it, it, well as people say your network is your net worth and i can't agree with that enough brilliant um anything else you want to plug while you're at while you're here while we've got you i got to thank my uh partner for putting up with me she is very very patient it's not easy living with a creative it's not easy living with someone who struggles to have an off switch i love to go editing late into the night and i love picking up a camera on the weekend so she's very patient with me so uh, if she listens to it she she has a little shout out i think it, she would have um a lot in common with my wife to talk about so yeah i i hear you there well, Tom, thanks so much uh, for joining me on Video Talks. It's been brilliant, really educational, fascinating journey into, you know, your 
filmmaking mind. Um, and I hope I'll catch up with you again um, on the end of a mic. So maybe a couple of years time when you're doing something else that's amazing. Um, in the meantime, take care and we'll see you on the other side of this crisis. Yeah, brilliant. Well, appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks to my guest, Tom Baker. He was great. There was so much uh, information there to be gleaned from his experience uh, for both experienced filmmakers and new ones, really, and also anyone who's uh, wanting to do video themselves. And of course, the show notes for this episode which will include all the links to things that we talked about and the films that he talked about uh, will be on videotalks.co forward slash Tom B. That's just the letter B. Uh, yeah, so check those out. So if you haven't subscribed, please, when you finish your run or finish your chill out or finish whatever you're doing after this podcast, love it if you could hit subscribe if you haven't done so. Um, and we can keep you updated. So the next episode will obviously feature more insights, tips and tricks from the experts. Uh, if you'd like to be featured in the One Minute Creator Pitch, then give us a shout at uh, pitch at videotalks.co. And all we ask is if you can subscribe and hopefully leave us a review and a rating. So yeah, catch us on Instagram at video talks podcast and i'll see you on the next episode take it easy cheers